Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. I just wanted to throw together a quick bonus on the Delphi case since we've had some recent developments that we've been long waiting for. But before I get into the most recent news, I'm going to go through the timeline first because this is the first time that I've ever talked about this case. On the afternoon of Sunday, February 12th, 2017, Abby Williams and Libby Durbin were driven by Abby's mom, Anna, to the field where they attended softball practice. When the girls got home later that evening, they ordered pizza. They worked on a project that was about chocolate. They joined Libby's older sister, Kelsey, and some of her friends for a movie, and eventually the girls went to bed. Abby planned on staying at Libby's for a sleepover that night because they did not have school the next day. The girls got up the next morning, Monday, February 13th, after being on their phones, making videos, doing Snapchats, etc., until the early morning hours. Libby's paternal grandfather, Mike Patty, with whom she primarily resides, along with her paternal grandmother, Becky, has said that he believes that the girls woke up sometime around 10 a.m. They had pancakes for breakfast, and soon the girls grew bored. They asked Becky if there was anything that needed to be done around the house, and she said that if they wanted to help her do some organizing of some paperwork and things like that, that later on she would take them to go shopping. In addition to that, the girls also painted a piece of furniture that was in Libby's bedroom, but despite all the busy work, they were getting kind of restless and wanted to go out. So over lunch, they asked Becky if it was okay if they went to go hiking at the Monin High Bridge. According to Kelsey, this is a place that they had been to many times as a family, and Libby was familiar with going back and forth across the bridge, which is an abandoned railroad trestle. It was a favorite place to take pictures and selfies. It's very Instagrammable. People go hiking, bike riding, geocaching, things of that sort. Abby's mom has stated that while Abby did not contact her and ask her for permission to go to the bridge that day, even if she had, she would have said yes. Now going over to the area where the bridge is located, at 1.26 p.m., a witness, a 16-year-old female, reported to have seen the man who would be known for the next five years as Bridge Guy. This girl was with some of her friends, I believe two other friends, near the Freedom Bridge, which is a bridge that crosses over, I believe, the country road or a highway, and it's just a few minutes walk away from the Monin High Bridge. The reason why this witness was able to recall the exact time she saw Bridge Guy is because she took a picture and sent it to her mother, and it was the time that she sent it that gave her the ability to nail down that time. As she was close to some benches near the Freedom Bridge, she saw a bridge guy and gave him a courtesy hello, but he shot her a look that kind of terrified her and then passed by him on a narrow walking trail. She described him as being approximately her height, maybe slightly taller, between 5'6 and 5'8 or 1.67 to 1.73 meters tall. Later on, when the news broke about Abby and Libby having gone missing, she contacted law enforcement with her information about this guy who gave her that frightening look. And without having yet seen 
what would become the most infamous images of Bridge Guy captured on Libby's phone. Her description of the man matched. It was a description that she gave 24 hours before those images were released to the public. The man had on blue jeans, a blue coat, a hoodie pulled over a short billed hat with his face partially covered on the lower half with the collar of his jacket. The witness's description of Bridge Guy was used in developing the composite sketch that was released several months later in July of 2017. Approximately 12 minutes later at 1.38 p.m., Abby and Libby were dropped off at the Monin High Trailhead by Libby's sister Kelsey. She kept an eye on them until she saw them make it to the trail. She is reported that she never noticed anything unusual or suspicious, and then she left. Around the same time that the girls were being dropped off at the trailhead, Libby called her dad, Derek, and asked him if he would be able to come and pick them up later. He said that he would once he was done running an errand for her grandmother. They didn't settle on a time when he would be coming to get them. He just said that he would either call or text them to let them know that he was nearby so they would have a chance to make it back to the trailhead. The girls began walking towards the bridge at approximately 2.05 p.m. Libby took a Snapchat picture of the Monin High Bridge. Two minutes later, she uploaded a Snapchat of Abby walking along the bridge. This was the last time either of the girls were heard from again. It would be at approximately 2.15 p.m. that Libby began using her phone to take videos. In these videos, the girls can be heard chatting about what law enforcement has described as stuff that girls talk about, but later they can be heard mentioning a man that they noticed behind them on the bridge. According to Sheriff Tobe Lesenby, he said that it seems as if the girls were first taking videos and pictures for fun, but the presence of Bridge Guy caused them to feel somewhat uncomfortable, and Libby decided to take that video of the man just in case. It's been speculated that Bridge Guy had some kind of weapon, possibly a gun, in his pocket, that he pulled it out on the girls in order to force them into compliance. And we've all heard the audio clip recorded on Libby's phone where Bridge Guy states, Guys, down the hill. From there, it's believed that Bridge Guy forced the girls off the Monin High Trail. There is a creek between where the bridge is and where the girls would ultimately be found, but there is a section of that creek that is only ankle high in some places and easily crossed. As for the guys down the hill, the down the hill part was released first. Guys was released later on. So it isn't really known yet if there was anything else said in between. Libby's dad has said, that investigators told him that there was nothing more said following down the hill. The side of the creek where Bridge Guy, Libby, and Abby ended up was on the property of a 77-year-old man named Ron Logan. And it would be sometime before 3.11 p.m. that Libby and Abby were murdered purportedly by this man known as Bridge Guy. Going back a few minutes, at some time between 2.45 and 3 p.m., a witness named Cheyenne Angles arrived at the trail. 
She parked in the same parking lot where the girls had been dropped off a couple hours earlier. She took some pictures of the bridge and she walked across it. Based on an analysis of the shadows in her photos, they seemed to have been taken around 3 p.m. Cheyenne reported that she did not hear or see anything at the time, and she posted about being there on her Facebook and that she did not see the girls at all. It's been theorized that the girls were both likely deceased by 3 p.m. and that Bridge Guy had already made his way out of the area, so Cheyenne would have missed anything related to Bridge Guy and the murders. Libby's father called her phone at 3.11 p.m., as he said he would, to let her know that he would be getting to the trailhead soon so they could start heading back. His call went unanswered. Three minutes later, at 3.14 p.m., he arrived in the parking lot of the trailhead, but the girls were not there. He tried calling Libby's phone again, but there was still no answer. It was very unusual for Libby not to answer Derek's calls or reply to his text messages, especially when she knows that he was on his way to pick her up. Derek then parked his car and headed for the trail in order to look for the girls. Shortly after 3.15 p.m., as Derek was going along the trail, he encountered a man wearing a flannel that is coming from the opposite direction. This person became known as Flannel Shirt Guy. Derek asked him if he saw two girls up there on the trail. Flannel Shirt Guy said that he did not, but there was a couple on the bridge. Derek continued walking along the trail looking for the girls. By 3.30 p.m., having not been able to find them, Derek turned around and called his mom, Becky, to tell her that he can't find the girls and to ask her if he could try and get a hold of them. Both Becky and Libby's Aunt Tara, who was there with her, both tried calling and texting Libby over and over. They continued to get no answers or replies. At approximately 4 p.m., Derek arrived back at his car. 30 minutes had gone by since Libby's dad, aunt, and grandmother had been trying to get a hold of her to no avail, and the concern was beginning to grow exponentially. Becky and Tara headed to the trailhead to help look for the girls. On the way there, Becky called Libby's grandfather, Mike, who was at work, and told him that they haven't been able to get a hold of Libby, so he left work early and headed to the trail as well. Becky next called Kelsey to let her know that they haven't been able to get a hold of Libby. Kelsey called her work to let them know that she was going to be late, and she headed to the trail also to help look for the girls as well. Several more members of Libby's family converged at the trailhead to assist in the search. After being unable to find them anywhere along the trail, they drove the only two ways the girls would have gone if they had decided to walk home, but still, they were unable to locate them. The family members began to think that the girls may have fallen or have somehow become injured and that Libby's phone is inoperable or perhaps the battery died. Kelsey was walking in the area, yelling Libby's name and calling her phone to see if she could hear it ringing, but she hears nothing. Libby's grandmother called her cell phone service provider and asked if they could ping Libby's phone and try and locate it but she was told that they can't do that for legal reasons. The family was also unable to use the Find My Phone app 
because about a week earlier, Libby had reset her phone because it was glitchy. That app was either deleted or disabled, and Libby had never re-enabled it. At 5.20 p.m., Libby's family contacted police and reported Abby and Libby missing. Five minutes later, Becky tried calling Abby's mom, Anna, to let her know what was going on. The call was missed, but Anna returned the call shortly thereafter and was made aware of what was going on. Shortly after the girls were reported missing, law enforcement arrived at the High Bridge and relatives turned to social media to ask for anyone who was available to come out to the area to assist in the search. And with that, the massive search for Abby and Libby began. Not only do local residents show up to help, but members from the Carroll County Sheriff's Department, the Delphi Police Department, and the Fire Department all worked in tandem to coordinate the search. Kelsey was asked to go to the police station to provide any important information that she may have had regarding the time that she dropped the girls off at the trailhead. Her grandfather collected all the electronic equipment and devices that they had in their home and brought that all down to the police station, along with their cell phone provider information so the police could try to get the company to ping Libby's phone. However, by 10.30 p.m. that evening, the local news began reporting that the girls' phones were either off or dead, though it is not known where this information came from. Drones were also being used to help in the search from the air. Due to the concerns for the safety of searchers and volunteers, law enforcement ended the official search at midnight. They were set to resume first thing in the morning, though numerous volunteers and firefighters continued the search well into the evening and into the early morning hours. The primary concern for the girls, of course, was exposure to the cold weather. Libby's grandfather took her grandmother home, both of them looking on as the night was being illuminated by dozens of flashlights that people were carrying, searching for their granddaughter and her best friend. Grandpa dropped Grandma off at home, but headed right back to the trail to continue searching for the girls. Just after 4.30 in the morning, the local news began reporting that the search was back on for Abby and Libby. By this time, they had been missing for more than 12 hours. Family and friends, concerned citizens, and everybody in between were out in force looking for the girls, hoping that they would be able to bring them home safe to their families. At 12.15 p.m., less than a day since Abby and Libby went missing, their bodies were discovered. In speaking to a journalist, Libby's sister said, that she was on a trail under the High Bridge looking into the woods when she heard someone yell that they found a shoe. Soon, that person who found the shoe used his phone camera to look at something in the distance that he saw moving. It was two deer, but when he moved his phone down to see what the deer were standing next to, that is when he saw the bodies of Libby and Abby through the camera lens of his cell phone. Kelsey's first instinct was to head over to where she now knew the girls were at, but one of the women who was in her search group stopped her, telling her that she shouldn't go, that they didn't know if it was them, and she kept Kelsey from going to the location of the bodies. At 2 p.m., the Carroll County Sheriff's Office, the Delphi Police, and the Indiana State Police 
held a press conference to announce that two bodies had been found, though their identities had not yet been confirmed, that they were going to scale down the search effort, and that the investigation was shifting from a missing persons to this being an active crime scene, and that foul play was involved. There weren't a lot of details on that day, nor would there be very much more about the crime itself for the next more than five years. The autopsies were conducted the following day, and those bodies discovered off the trail were indeed those of Abigail Williams and Liberty German. That same day, police released a picture of Bridge Guy that was taken by Libby, hoping that someone may be able to assist in identifying who this person was. At that time, Bridge Guy was not officially named a suspect or a person of interest, but that would change four days later. Bridge Guy became a person of interest, and authorities really wanted to talk to him in connection with the double murder that had shaken the residents of Delphi and the surrounding communities. On February 22, 2017, Indiana State Police released that audio recording of a man's voice, believing it to be the voice of Bridge Guy that was taken by Libby on her phone. And again, they asked for the public's help in trying to identify the man and his voice. Libby German has since been considered to have been quite brave, with very quick thinking when it came to this heroic act of taking that video of Bridge Guy. If not for that last thing that she would ever do with her phone, it's likely that nobody would have ever been held responsible for Libby and Abby's murder. That same day, both of their families spoke to the media, pleading for help in finding Bridge Guy, and a reward fund of $41,000 was announced for information leading to an arrest in the case. Within five days, police received nearly 10,000 tips, and the reward reached $100,000. On March 1, 2017, the Indianapolis Colts donated an additional $97,000 to the reward fund. By March 9th, the reward surged to $224,000, and the tips topped 11000 and counting. Also on March 17th, a search warrant was executed at the private property where Abby and Libby were discovered. The property owner, Ron Logan, who is now deceased, was never suspected of having any involvement, but was arrested for violating probation and sentenced to time in prison. Also in March, police investigated a man named Keegan Klein in order to determine whether or not he may have somehow been connected or involved in the double murder. A social media account that he created was found to be one of the last accounts that Libby interacted with prior to her disappearance. The account was under the name Anthony Schatz, and it was one where he was pretending to be a model in order to be able to talk to girls online and solicit nude photographs. Authorities never named Klein a suspect in Abby and Libby's murders, and more than three years later, in August of 2020, Klein was charged with 30 felonies, including being in possession of images of child sexual abuse, child exploitation, obstruction of justice, child solicitation, and synthetic identity deception. In July of 2017, 
a composite sketch of Bridge Guy was released to the media. His description is based on witnesses at the scene the day of the murders who are believed to have seen him. The sketch is that of a white male with a goatee, a short billed hat along with a hoodie. They also listed what they estimated the man's hair color to be, his height, and his weight. Law enforcement asked the public to carefully look at the image and see if there is anything about this man's face that looks familiar or may be able to help identify him, and if you do, they wanted you to contact police immediately. On September 27, 2017, a man named Daniel Nations was arrested for driving a vehicle with expired tags in Colorado. He was taken into custody near a trail where a cyclist was shot a couple of weeks earlier, and he was also accused of threatening hikers with a weapon. Investigators on the Delphi case went to interview Nations in Colorado as they discovered that he was in Delphi but homeless at the time the girls were murdered. But after speaking to him, investigators said there was nothing of significance that either included or excluded him as a person of interest or a suspect in the murders. On October 3rd, Nations was charged with failing to register as a sex offender. Then, a little more than two years after Abby and Libby were murdered, on April 22, 2019, police suddenly released a whole new composite sketch of the killer, which they believed to be a more accurate representation of Bridge Guy. And it did look drastically different and younger than the original sketch. Investigators said that there had been a shift in the case into a new direction and that the suspect was between the ages of 18 and 40. They also released a slightly longer audio clip of the suspect making the demand, guys, down the hill. On April 5, 2021, an anonymous donation of $100,000 was received by the Indiana State Police, bringing the total reward fund to $325,000 for information leading to the arrest of Abby and Libby's killer. 22 days later, on April 27th, investigators announced that they are looking into a man named James Chadwell following an arrest for attacking a nine-year-old girl. Nothing more ever came of Chadwell in terms of any connection to the Delphi murders. On December 1st, 2021, an update on the investigation was released by the Indiana State Police as they continue to appeal to the public for information regarding anyone who may have connected with Keegan Klein's online account, Anthony Schatz, but they remained very vague about what, if any, connection to the murders that he may have. The investigation into Klein continued well into 2022, and in October of 2022, Klein's cases were denied until May of 2023. Then finally, on October 29, 2022, Libby's sister Kelsey tweeted, Today is the day. The day before, the local media began reporting that a man named Richard Allen was arrested for the murders of Abby and Libby. The Delphi Homicide Task Force later announced the arrest at a press conference on October 31, 2022. At a preliminary hearing, Allen pleaded not guilty. At the time of that hearing, the probable cause affidavit had been sealed by the judge, but was unsealed on November 29th. Who is Richard Allen? 
More than five years after best friends Abby and Libby tried to remedy boredom with a walk along the Monenhai Bridge to enjoy the outdoors during an unseasonably warm afternoon on a scheduled day off from school, a walk from which they never returned, a man was finally arrested and charged with their murders. There had been thousands of tips, a handful of suspects, and many frustrating leads that led to one dead end after another. Investigators finally made that arrest, Richard Allen. He had apparently been right under the noses of law enforcement and basically everybody ever since. He had even been spoken to back in 2017 by law enforcement not too long after the murders had taken place and again in October of 2017. Richard Matthew Allen is a 50-year-old married father with no criminal history to speak of. He has resided in Delphi for as many as 16 years in a three-bedroom home purchased in 2006. He was a pharmacy technician who received his license two years after the murders. He lives about five minutes away from the scene of the murders, and he lived pretty close to the middle school that Abby and Libby attended. He first came onto police radar back in 2017 when he admitted he was at the Monenhigh Bridge the afternoon that the girls were killed, though he was never named a person of interest or a suspect publicly. It had long been believed that the girls were murdered by someone local, someone who was familiar with the area, someone who knew how to navigate that trail and that bridge. And while Alan has been the only person charged thus far, authorities have stated that they have not ruled out the possibility that there were others involved and that the investigation will carry on to ensure that if there is anybody else, they will be held accountable for their crimes as well. It was a long time coming for all of us, especially for the families of these two girls who waited far too long for that day to be the day. As this case has been one of the most followed murder cases in recent times in the Midwest region of the United States. What set this case apart from many other unsolved murders was the fact that we had an image of the man, we had a video of him, and the sound of him telling the girls to go down the hill. Absolutely critical evidence given to police by Libby herself, who had the forethought, the wherewithal the understanding of what they were faced with on that bridge that day. Yet despite the mounting fear that triggered her to instinctually raise her phone and press record, she wanted to make sure that if something did happen to her and Abby, that law enforcement would have the best evidence possible of this man who stalked them and ordered them off the trail and ultimately ended their lives. Kathy Allen, the wife, had posted on her Facebook a photo of their daughter sitting on that same bridge. It can be found online with her face blurred out. Also on social media back in December of 2021, a picture of Alan was taken with his wife in a bar in Delphi with the police sketch of the Delphi suspect in the background, which is chilling considering how much Alan resembles the first police sketch of Bridge Guy. The bar owner was interviewed and told the Daily Beast that he spoke to Alan about the case, how sad that it was, 
and how bad they felt for the families. But they really did make an effort to try not to bring it up too much because everybody knew the families of the victims. This picture of Alan and his wife is online if you want to look it up. The probable cause affidavit is redacted, but it describes in detail what led to Alan's arrest. Interviews, examination of electronic records, and surveillance video from the nearby Hoosier Harvest Store, which is a farming equipment wholesaler, all of these things resulted in Alan being taken into custody in October. After Abby and Libby were dropped off that afternoon, they encountered Alan less than 30 minutes later. The video of him taken by Libby's phone was at 2.13 p.m. In it, he issued the order, Guys Down the Hill. No witnesses saw Abby or Libby, and no further communications were made with Libby's phone after that time. Their bodies were found close to 24 hours later. The video depicts Abby walking along the bridge with a man wearing a dark blue jacket and blue jeans following behind her. As the man gets closer to them, one of the girls mentions the word gun, and it was toward the end of the video that he is recorded saying, Guys, down the hill. The girls' bodies were discovered a short distance away from the bridge, and their clothing belonging to them was found nearby. Less than two feet away from their bodies, an unspent forty caliber round was discovered. This round had not been fired, but had extraction marks on it. Extractor marks are striations created by the action of the gun extractor, which is a part of the gun that removes the fired and or unfired cartridge case from the chamber of most auto-loading and repeating firearms. Several witnesses reported that they were on the bridge that day that the girls were murdered, and as they were walking along the trail towards the Freedom Bridge, they encountered a man walking from the Freedom Bridge towards the Monon High Bridge. They described the man as kind of creepy and that he was wearing like blue jeans and like a really light blue jacket and his hair was gray, maybe a little brown, and he did not really show his face. That the jacket was a duck canvas type jacket and that there was something covering his mouth. One of them said hi to the man, but he just glared at them. The man was described as not very tall with a bigger build and with his hands kept in his pockets. One of the witnesses had photographs that she had taken of the Monon High Bridge at 12.43 p.m. that day, and another picture of the bench east of the Freedom Bridge at 1.26 p.m. After she took a photo of the bench, they started walking back towards the Freedom Bridge, and that is when they encountered the man who matched the description in the video that Libby took. Another witness said that the jacket had a collar and that he had his hood up from the clothing that he was wearing underneath the jacket, and that his jeans were baggy. She described him as walking with a purpose, as if he knew where he was going and was familiar with the area, and that his hands were in his pockets, and that he kept his head down the whole time. While she didn't get a good look at his face, she believed this man to be white. Another witness interviewed by investigators said that she was on the trails that same afternoon as well. Surveillance video from the harvest store showed her car traveling towards the entrance of the trailhead at 1.46 p.m. She said she saw four young girls walking on the bridge over the old State Road 25 as she was driving underneath it on her way to park her car. She walked to the Monon High Bridge 
and observed a man matching the description of the subject in Libby's video, a white male wearing blue jeans and a blue jean jacket, and that he was standing on the first platform of the bridge about 50 feet or 15 meters away from her. She then turned around at the bridge and continued her walk. Approximately halfway between the bridge and the parking lot, she passed two girls walking towards the Monenhai Bridge, and she believed those girls to be Abby and Libby. She saw no other adults on the bridge other than the male subject, and her car was seen on the harvestor leaving at 2.14 p.m. Another witness that was spoken to stated that she was traveling on Country Road 300 North, which passes nearby the location of the Monenhai Bridge, on the day of the murders, when she observed a man walking in the opposite direction as her away from the bridge. She said she observed him wearing a blue jacket and blue jeans, and that he was muddy and bloody, and that she believed the man to have been in a fight. From the video at the harvest store, this witness would have been traveling on this road around 3.57 p.m. This witness did not see Abby or Libby at any time. Richard Allen was interviewed in 2017 by police. In that officer's narrative, it stated, Mr. Allen was on the trail between 1.30 and 3.30 p.m. He parked at the old Farm Bureau building and walked to the Freedom Bridge. While at that bridge, he saw three females. He noted one was taller and had brown or black hair. He did not remember the description, nor did he speak to them. He walked from the Freedom Bridge to the High Bridge. He did not see anybody, although he stated he was watching a stock ticker on his phone as he walked. He stated that there were vehicles parked at the High Bridge trailhead. However, he did not pay attention to them. He did not take any photo or videos. Investigators believe that the Farm Bureau building was a former Child Protective Services building, and the females that he saw were the witnesses investigators spoke to who provided a description of the man who matched the man in Libby's video. In 2017, Allen was known to own two vehicles, one of them a black Ford Focus. It resembled a vehicle captured on the Harvestor video traveling towards the trail at the time that coincided with his own statements that he arrived at the trails at 1.30 p.m. More than five years later, on October 13, 2022, Allen was interviewed again by investigators. He stated that he was on the hiking trails on February 13, 2017, the day of the murders. He said that he saw juvenile girls on the trail east of the Freedom Bridge and that he walked on the Monenhai Bridge. He further stated that he had gone out onto the bridge to watch the fish. He later stated that he walked out to the first platform on the bridge and then walked back, sat on a bench along the trail, and then he left. He said he parked his car on the side of an old building. He said that he was wearing blue jeans and either a blue or black car hat jacket with a hood, and that's a brand of outerwear. He further stated that he may have been wearing some kind of head covering as well. Allen said that he saw no one else except for the three girls he saw east of the Freedom Bridge. He also advised that he owned firearms and that he kept them at his house. In speaking to Allen's wife that same day, she confirmed that Allen did own several guns and knives and that he still owned a blue car hat jacket. A search warrant was executed at Allen's home that same day. October 13th. 
Among the items, investigators found jackets, boots, knives, and guns, including a 40 caliber pistol. The next day, October 14th through the 19th, the state lab performed an analysis of Allen's 40 caliber pistol, and it was determined that the unspent 40 caliber round near the victims had been cycled through Allen's gun, a gun that he purchased 21 years earlier in 2001. Allen voluntarily came in to speak to the Indiana police. He was asked if he ever allowed anyone to borrow the gun, and he said that he never allowed anyone to use or borrow his 40 caliber pistol. When he was asked about the unspent bullet, he was unable to provide an explanation of why that bullet was found between the bodies of the two victims. He admitted that he was on the trail but denied knowing either victim and denied having anything to do with their murders. In a review and examination of all the evidence gathered in this case by investigators, it is believed that all shows Richard Allen is the male subject on the video that Libby took with her phone. He's the man who ordered both her and Abby down the hill, that they were not only forced down the hill, but that he led them to the place where they were ultimately murdered. They also believe him to be the same man all the witnesses saw and described walking along the trails during the time Abby and Libby were dropped off at the bridge, walking along it and taking Snapchats. Allen's vehicles matches that captured on the Harvester video, and that coincides with the time that he admitted that he was on the trails. The clothing that he said he was wearing also matches the clothing of the subject seen in Libby's video. And through Allen's own statements, he placed himself on the trails and on the Monon High Bridge during the time that video was taken by Libby. No male subjects matching Allen's description were seen on the trail after 2.13 p.m., that time Libby's video was taken. Other male individuals identified as being on the trails that day have been determined to not match the description of Bridge Guy. And what's more, Allen admitted to seeing three girls, all of whom provided descriptions that matched Allen slash Bridge Guy. It's believed that the reason why Allen was not seen on the trail after 2.13 p.m. is because he was in the woods with Abby and Libby. The bullet found near their bodies was determined to have come from his gun. He admitted owning it and that he's owned it since 2001. Allen insisted he had never been on the property where the unspent round was found, that he did not know the owner of the property, and that he had no explanation why a round from his firearm would be at that location. He further stated that he never loaned the gun to anyone or let anyone else use it. It is believed that after Allen murdered Abby and Libby, he returned to his vehicle by walking along Country Road 300 North, where a witness saw him as she traveled on that same road and described his clothing as being muddy and bloody. Richard Allen worked at CVS, and following his arrest, people who had seen him there posted about him online, along with a screenshot of a relative of Libby's confirming that Allen was the one who helped them when they went to the CVS to get their pictures printed for Abby and Libby's funerals. Allen gave the family the printed pictures for free. In a search warrant that was issued in March of 2017, it stated that the bodies of the girls were moved or staged and that a large amount of blood was lost by the victims at the scene. 
and that because of the nature of the wounds to the victims, it is almost certain that their killer would have gotten blood on himself and his clothing. The warrant also indicated two articles of clothing from one of the girls were missing, leading to the speculation that their killer may have taken those items as some sort of souvenir. The warrant also says that the video that the guys down the hill clip came from is 43 seconds long and that the girls are being followed by the subject on the Monon High Bridge. About two weeks after his arrest, Allen wrote a letter from the jail. In it, he said that his wife had been forced to leave her job and to go into hiding and that he's finding himself at the mercy of the court. He said his wife had to leave their Delphi home out of concern for their own safety. When he first went before the judge, he told the court that he would be hiring his own attorney, but according to the letter he wrote, he seems to now be in need of a court-appointed public defender and apparently pleaded to be assigned one. This is what his letter said. In the cause listed above, I, Richard M. Allen, hereby throw myself at the mercy of the court. I am begging to be provided with legal assistance in a public defender or whatever is available. At my initial hearing on October 28, 2022, I asked to find representation for myself. However, at the time, I had no clue how expensive it would be just to talk to someone. I also did not realize what my wife and I's immediate financial situation was going to be. We have both been forced to immediately abandon employment, myself due to incarceration, and my wife for her personal safety. Again, I throw myself at the mercy of the court. Please provide me whatever assistance you may. Thank you for your time in this most urgent matter. At another court hearing earlier in the month of November, a bail hearing was granted along with the prosecutor having indicated that Allen may not be the only suspect in this case. The affidavit that I just shared the details of with you had been sealed at the time and the prosecutor argued for it to be kept as such because of the possibility of Allen not being the only person involved in this case. The prosecutor also expressed concern that if the affidavit was released to the public, that witnesses might potentially be harassed. But we got the affidavit and it's been redacted to protect the identity of those witnesses. Allen's bail hearing has been set for February 17, 2023, at which time his attorneys are going to ask for him to either be released on his own recognizance or for a reasonable bail to be set. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the evidence that was revealed in the probable cause affidavit. Like many of you, I was pretty excited and relieved that after more than five years, someone was finally arrested for the murders of Abby and Libby. I have not talked about this case very much. I don't even know if I've ever even mentioned it in any of my episodes. This case began just months before I launched this podcast. The girls were murdered in February of 2017, and I started California Dreaming in June of 2017. I was interested in this case, but, you know, I felt like this was one of those stories that seemed to be best left alone. I do this show mostly about stories out of California, and it at the time didn't feel right for me to go poking around in a very serious and heavily guarded high-profile case from such a small Midwestern town. There were also plenty of other shows, several of them based in the Midwest, who have talked about Abby and Libby's case and have regularly followed up with it as the years have gone by. 
There was also the Down the Hill podcast, which is produced by HLN and has covered the case extensively. And to be honest, the thing that got me wanting to finally sit down and to know more about this story as a whole was the fact that they finally arrested someone. We've casually discussed Abby and Libby in our Facebook discussion group from time to time whenever there was breaking news or persons of interest, but I found it to be pretty frustrating that it was taking so long to make an arrest on what seemed like such a solvable case. Now that they have this Allen person in custody, he seems to have pretty much implicated himself by confirming that he was there at the bridge at the same time that the girls were there and that he was wearing that clothing worn by bridge guy. And now I feel like, okay, we're making some progress. We might be getting some answers. But if there's one thing that I don't like, and lots of you who are my listeners also don't like, is feeling like this case isn't making any progress. Many of us are not huge fans of unsolved cases. But now that we have a name and a face, we don't have to keep calling him Bridge Guy. And I feel better talking about it with you all. When Alan was arrested, I was relieved. And to me, he resembles the first sketch that was released of Bridge Guy back in 2017. I'm not even really sure where that second sketch came about, but looking back on it all now, it kind of worries me that something like that and how it can play right into the defense if Alan is indeed the man who murdered these girls. I actually wasn't even all that concerned about the case against Alan until this probable cause affidavit was released yesterday, or maybe the day before, I can't remember. The 29th? Oh, oh wow, it's December 1st today. Shoot. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. It's not even 7 in the morning yet. Anyway, I wasn't worried about the case against Alan until the affidavit started getting posted around social media. And I wasn't even all that worried after I read it. But after I posted it in our Facebook group and I started putting this episode together, Comments were being made on the post and I was getting messages from listeners about it. And there is some real concern out there that the probable cause is flimsy. And you know, our friend and host of Defense Diaries, Bob Mata, him in particular is confident that there's not nearly enough for Alan to even be kept in jail, much less for the state to actually win a conviction. And I have so much respect for Bob. I listen to everything that he has to say because this is his jam. This is what he does. He sees things first and foremost in terms of what is fair and just for the defendant because he's a defense attorney. And from seeing some of his comments along with some of the others, my confidence in the case against Allen has been shaken. The evidence listed in the probable cause affidavit is all circumstantial. There are some eyewitness accounts that are conflicting particularly when it comes to the color of the clothing Bridge Guy was wearing. At least one person said he was dressed in black, but most said it was his jacket that was blue and his jeans were blue, consistent with a video that Libby took. Alan himself admitted to police that he was wearing a blue jacket and blue jeans that day on the trails, and his wife confirmed that he did still have that jacket in the affidavit, and that it said that jackets were collected on October 26th when the search warrant was executed at his house. They may have also collected all of his jeans. 
I found one of the most disturbing details of the affidavit was the fact that a witness who saw a bridge guy walking along the country road was covered in mud and blood. I mean, it seems kind of strange that the guy would be walking along the side of the country road like that, covered in that mess, which meant he needed to get to his car to go home and clean up without raising anyone's suspicions. Maybe nobody was home at his house and he cleaned up and showered and washed his clothes and cleaned out his car before anyone was the wiser. It's so frustrating that investigators talked to this guy early on in the investigation, twice in fact, in 2017, and Alan said that he was at the bridge that day and that he was wearing the clothing that matched the description that bridge guy was wearing. So if there was any lingering blood or DNA evidence still around, it wasn't collected. And Alan, if he is Bridge Guy, has had five years to get rid of all that evidence. That's where a lot of the concern about this case lies, whether or not there is still any biological evidence left that can definitively link Alan to the murders. If they had that kind of evidence on hand, wouldn't they have included that in their probable cause affidavit? Or is it possible that they're still working to process the evidence and maybe there will be new information presented at his bail hearing coming up in February? Listen, I am by no means a legal scholar by any stretch of the imagination, but you know how authorities have been holding details about this case so close to the vest all this time, all these years? So I'm wondering, is it possible that they decided to put together just enough information to get the arrest warrant in an effort to continue to keep most of the details away from public consumption? I mean, at this point, we can pretty much infer that it's possible that the girls were shot to death and because their clothing was found apart from them, that there may have been a sexual component to the crime, but none of that was stated in the affidavit. We haven't been told that one or both of the girls were sexually assaulted, nor have we been told how they were killed. Who knows what else that is known by investigators and the prosecutor that has been kept out of that affidavit because they still don't want to release those details. These girls were found in a relatively short time from the time they disappeared and subsequently murdered. So if the killer did sexually assault them, it would have been very difficult for him to not have left any DNA evidence behind. Touch DNA, skin cells, sweat, hair, semen. I don't know why that information would be kept so closely guarded, but then again, that's the way this case has been since day one, and they just aren't going to show all their cards for us to see. They haven't then, and they're not going to start right now. Also, if Alan does own the gun, that was used to kill the girls, it's possible that their DNA might still be somewhere on it. And if it is, forensic analysts will find it. So here's what I'm thinking. The two biggest pieces of information that authorities have been keeping from the media and the public is how Abby and Libby were killed and whether or not they were sexually assaulted. They have been clear in reiterating that this case is still ongoing and they haven't ruled out the possibility that more than one person was involved in this. If, and that's a big if, if they have DNA, blood, hair, skin cells, semen, 
things of that nature. If they have the victim's blood on the gun and they included that information in the affidavit, it would then reveal important aspects of the case that they didn't want to make public yet. So maybe they limited what they had as it related to what they needed to get a warrant for Allen's arrest only, like the bare minimum. We know that they know how the girls were killed, and we know that they know whether or not they were sexually assaulted, and none of that information has ever been divulged, not since the crime occurred and not since the affidavit. The county officials seem to be treating Allen's case much differently than the average criminal defendant anyway, and that's evident just in the fact that he's going to have to wait almost four months in jail before he's even going to have a bail hearing, which seems a little bit unconstitutional. Again, not a law scholar, but last I heard, once we decided to break up with the monarchy, one of the things that they had beef with was throwing people into jail indefinitely and just holding them like for whatever time they wanted to in custody until somebody felt like charging you or taking you to trial. Most murder suspects are denied bond, and they find that out pretty quickly, though. It's weird that Alan has to wait until February. Bob Mata said in a comment in the group something to the effect that with the evidence that Alan had against him that was outlined in the affidavit, this guy should be freed or given some kind of reasonable bail. So it makes me think that there's much more still to be revealed and that maybe we'll find out what all that is come February 2023. In the search of Allen's house on the day that he was arrested, investigators also found the 40 caliber gun that lab experts have forensically linked to the bullet found near the girls' bodies. And Allen said that he's owned that gun since 2001 and that he never loaned it to anyone and that he'd never been on that property where the girls were discovered and that he has no explanation why a bullet that was cycled through his own gun wound up on the ground near the girls. While this is a significant piece of circumstantial evidence, we still don't know what's going on with the bullets that may have been used to murder the girls if, in fact, they were shot to death. I do have my doubts that the girls were shot because nobody reported hearing any gunshots that I know of. I'm not sure if anybody has ever reported it. I didn't read about it. Unless there is another detail that investigators are keeping tight-lipped about. Alan's wife, when interviewed, confirmed that her husband not only had guns, but also knives. So he may have stabbed the girls. Remember, there was a witness who saw the man believed to be Bridge Guy walking along the country road covered in mud and blood. Would he have necessarily been covered like that in blood if he had shot the girls? It seems like something that would most likely happen in a violent event that was more up close and personal. He may have used the gun to control the girls and then murdered them in a way that wouldn't draw attention. He could have incapacitated them, knocked them out, or otherwise injured them, rendering them incapable of yelling or screaming for help because nobody seems to have heard anything that afternoon. One thing that I am kind of worried about is how this seemingly normal family man suddenly and out of the blue goes from no criminal history to speak of to the double murder of two children. 
if Alan is bridge guy, he went there prepared to do something bad. He was described as being overdressed for the unseasonably warm day. He had a jacket over a hoodie with a hat and the hoodie pulled over it. The jacket zipped all the way up that covered the lower part of his face. He walked around with his hands in his pockets and at least one witness suspected that he had a weapon in his pocket. How is it that this guy up and left his home that day, a five-minute drive or so from the Monon High Bridge, in the middle of a beautiful Monday afternoon, to go and murder two eighth graders? And then in this tiny town, where everybody is looking for Bridge Guy, how is it that he managed to go about his life for five and a half years without anyone in his life doing a double take. It's possible that maybe he was living way too normally, way too in plain sight. Like people saw him and maybe they thought it and they're like, nah, not the pharmacy guy there over at the CVS, not Kathy's husband, not so-and-so's dad. There's no way. Maybe Richard Allen was just too average. I think that we were kind of expecting this case to go along like most other cases that we follow, but this one feels like it's been different from the start, and I don't think that there is any way to predict how anything is going to go. Right from the start, with Alan's bail hearing being four months away from the time that he's arrested, isn't the way that things are supposed to happen, and I'm not really sure why it is happening. And let's not forget to factor in the influence of the media. When I was reading Bob's comments and opinions about the circumstantial evidence and that there was no chance of winning a conviction in this case, you see, when Bob and I first started talking, we were at odds about the Dr. Anthony Garcia case, which I covered last year and he is currently covering in his second season of his podcast. Bob defended Garcia. He was his attorney. I read a book about the case written by, I believe, one of the journalists from Omaha. And Bob would be the first to tell you that the Garcia case was tried in the media. There was all this bias that the prosecutor was in cahoots with the local reporters. And Garcia ended up being convicted and is currently sitting on death row. And Bob will say that the evidence against him was beyond weak and that a conviction should have never happened. And he seems to be feeling the same way here in this Delphi case. And if you are familiar with the Garcia case, there are some similarities when it comes to the evidence that they had against Garcia and the evidence that they have in this case against Allen. Potentially unreliable eyewitnesses. There are some discrepancies about vehicles, questionable gun evidence, other possible suspects several years between the crime itself and the arrest, and little to no DNA or blood evidence. Yet Garcia was still convicted despite Bob and his team putting up a formidable defense. Bob will tell you all the reasons why he lost the Garcia case, and it had nothing to do with the evidence against his client or lack thereof. And I say the same thing is very, very possible in this case against Richard Allen. It's those things the system just can't control, the media and public opinion. So do I think Richard Allen is bridge guy? I do, for a couple of reasons. I feel like 
the law enforcement agencies would not have made this move in arresting him if they weren't confident in their case. While there was pressure for them to solve this, it sure didn't appear as if they made any hasty decisions or rushes to judgment at any point since the murders happened more than five years ago. They took their time. They would say it was methodical. There is still a lot more information that they have about this case that we haven't seen or heard yet. So I understand that what we did learn in the probable cause affidavit is pretty slim and may even be a bit disappointing and worrisome. But I think there's more yet to come, which may be one of the reasons why this guy is being made to sit in jail without a bond hearing. I do have to admit, though, there is a part of me that thinks that I want this guy to be bridge guy because I want this case to be solved because I don't want a child killer walking free. And another thing that really gets to me is him throwing himself on the mercy of the court, all that stuff. It makes me feel like he's guilty because when somebody does that, it means they're allowing someone else to have the power in how their case and ultimately their life is handled and how they are treated. At least that's how I interpret it. I see it as a guilty move. But anyway, I want to thank you for listening. I'm taking the rest of the week off for a birthday, but it shouldn't affect the show schedule too much since there is no schedule. We'll keep watching this case. I'm interested to see how it all unfolds. I want to thank you all so much for all of your love and all of your support. And until next time, sweet dreams.